Romans 8.28. Uh, to get into our text today, I want to look at how we got here. Uh, today's text continues, as Paul's work to continue just to drive into our heads and into our hearts that we can have assurance in our salvation. And man, it's just been such a kindness, so, so generous of, of, of God to give us this over and over again of why we can have assurance, why we can have peace, why our hope can be, can be ironclad. And so he's working just to drive it into our heads and our hearts how we can have assurance in our salvation. And, he, and, he, and today kind of brings us to this wrap-up uh, of an answer to the question that he, he kind of posed in verses 17 and 18 of, of, uh, of Romans 8. Uh, 8.18 says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So it's the idea of how do we endure in the midst of suffering? How do we have assurance when we know that there is trial and hardship and suffering in this world? And so Paul's been working to bring us to that hope, to that, to that courage, to that strength and that assurance. So there's been great words of comfort up to this point as Paul's been kind of bringing us to this. A few weeks ago, we talked about how we are permanently adopted as sons and daughters through Jesus. So, the, so again, that we are made part of a family, made people of hope, made co-heirs of Christ. Again, and it's all because of what Jesus did, not what we did. We have the Holy Spirit. He gave us the Holy Spirit. And because we have the Holy Spirit, that is our seal and our guarantee that we are His. The Holy Spirit also empowers us. He it says the same Spirit that raised, the same power that raised Jesus from the grave is in you. That's the Holy Spirit. So again, great encouragement to, to fortify your insurance. So we've been given the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit inclines our wills, shapes our desires more and more over time. It's the becoming like Jesus. So again, what a gift. And now we come to one of the most familiar verses in Scripture if you're familiar with Scripture. Um, and that's okay if you're not. It's, it's as if Paul's train of thought was this. He says, and to keep you, you know, he just said you have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit intercedes for you. It, again, it, it steps in and it, and it inclines your hope to God. It inclines your will to God. But it also, it also groans beyond what you can. The Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit again, does the ministry of, of, of working on your behalf. As you, as you fall short of words, and as if Paul is saying, like, and just in case, that's, that's still a struggle for you to keep you when you're at a loss for words and straining to remember all that's been promised. He says, you know, maybe you can't feel it, you can't see it, but here you are. He's come to that point. That's what brings us to verse 28. Romans 8, 28 says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Let's read it again. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. How many of you have ever heard that verse before? And if you haven't, again, it's okay. But that's one that's like we cling to. We're like, oh, gosh, it's all going to work out. And like it's, it's one I grew up hearing on my life. And I'm like, that's, that's my comfort. All is going to work out for the good because I know I love God and I'm, I think I'm called by him. And so like it's, it's a w pretty well-known verse. And he comes to this point. He's saying, hey, if all else fails, just cling to this promise. So that's where we're at today is this great promise. Before we go any further, let me pray. And we're going to work through these three verses over the next 25 minutes or so. God. We love you. 
I love getting to say that every week, every day as I come to you. Because to know that there is an affection for you is an evidence that you have worked in us, God. Without the work of Christ, we see in your word that there is no affection and love for you. Without the work of Christ, it says we are enemies of God. We are your enemies. But in your great love, you've adopted us as sons and daughters. You've taken us from being a rebel to a saint, set apart for the holy work of your glory and kingdom. So now as we come to this promise today, I pray that the work of assurance that you are working to do in our hearts, in our minds, in our conscience, in our lives, Lord, would just take more root. Lord, it would become more real, and it would fortify our trust in you over anything else. So, Lord, we love you. We praise you. Use this time for your glory. Speak through me in spite of me, whatever it takes. Be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. So what a promise. All things work together for good. That's, that's the promise here. That's the central claim of verse 28. All things work together for good. What we see when we read this, there's a couple of qualifications to participate in this promise. Do you see that? So if we want the promise, all things work together for good, there's a couple of things that have to be true. First thing we see is this, for those who love God. You're like, okay, what do we do with that? So you want this confidence to know that all will work together for your good, it says, well, you have to love God is kind of what it sounds like it's saying. So what does this mean? Just real quickly, what it's not saying. It is not saying for those that love God enough. It is not saying those that love God better than somebody else. Those that love God, that have more affection for God than the person to their right or to their left or the person that's gone before them or that's going ahead of them. It's not saying that those who love God enough get this promise. That's not what it's saying. It says, those who love God, all think, for those who love God, all things will work together for good. So what is this statement, those who love God? It's an identity statement. It's a statement of being. It's, it's a matter of fact. And so those who love God, is, it is something that is given to you once again in Christ. Those who love God equals those who have been redeemed, transformed, made new, again, adopted as sons and daughters, brought into the family of God, given a new name, a new purpose, a new, a new motive, a new will. Again, all things new. The dead is gone. The new has come. This is what we see the work of Christ is. And so once again, as Paul's been doing all through Romans, he's saying it's not you, it's Jesus. It's not you that, makes, that brings your hope. It's not you that attains your salvation. It's not you that makes things go well. It is the work of Christ in your life. So once again, even our love for God is a result of the work of Christ in our lives. Again, like I said earlier, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 talks about us being dead in our sin. That means that we are unable to muster up any motivation to give affection, to give worship to God, to give love to God. Again, so as we are renewed and changed, that love for God is actually a work of Jesus in our lives. So for those who love God is an identity statement. It means that this overall characteristic of your life is that the overall direction and motivation of your life is toward God, toward the things of God. It means that there's a battle against sin. Yes, we sin. Yes, we struggle, but we battle. 
you know, go back to what we saw in Romans 7, this whole, this whole kind of tornness that we talk about that leads to Paul then saying, hey, I know that you at times don't do the things you want to do as someone who has a new motive, who has a new will. You still struggle with the flesh and sin. And then there's times that you, you do the things you don't want to do. And then he goes on and he's like breaking it all down. He's like, it's so desperate. Let me just remind you, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Once again, that brings us to Romans 8.1. And so we see that we, yes, we battle against sin. As, but because, because our hearts and our will are inclined to God, because he has transformed us. And, and as we've said a few times throughout studying Romans, we come to this place as, as, we, as we revel in the completed work of Christ and we rest in it, we see that we're also called to work in the midst of it being completed. We're called to pursue a life unto him. And so that's where we see, you know, God is not against effort. He's just against our earning. And so once again, as we understand those who love God, it is a statement of being. It's a statement of your identity. It is a work of Christ in your life as an evidence so it's a descriptor. It's a descriptor, not just a behavioral prerequisite. So when we come to think about those who love God, it doesn't uh, apply to those who are not Christ followers. Those who love God only is referring to those who have acknowledged Christ as Savior and have experienced his renewing work. Again, it's not just someone that has appreciation for, but it's someone who has supernaturally trusted, surrendered, and given over. How can we say that? We can know this because of the other qualification. The second qualification is, says, for those who were called. We see that? To be called is not just to hear the general call. I, th I think about a buddy of mine. My, my dad used to live in these apartments, and we would be playing out in the apartments and we could be on the other side of the complex, and we would be playing our hearts out in full speed, and he would just, I'm not going to do it, but he would hear his dad. His dad had this loud, piercing whistle, and he would just whistle, and immediately, whatever we were doing, my friend would stop and just take off running home. He would just go, and I'd be like, where did, where did Jason go? He's gone. His dad whistled. Oh, Okay. Um, but the thing about calling, it's not just those who hear the whistle, the call, because, again, there are many that have heard the message of the gospel. There are many that have heard the invitation into new life and restoration and freedom and salvation. But this sense of calling is the, is the effectual call, the call that has resulted in the life given to God in Christ, the life surrendered, the life renewed and redeemed. It's not just the hearing. It is the hearing, believing, confessing, and finding new life resulting in this new purpose. We see this sense of call all throughout the New Testament, and it's always speaking of, of those who have experienced the restoring work of Jesus. It makes them partakers of the promise, members of the family, and carriers of the mission of Jesus. We see an example of that in 1 Corinthians 1-2. It says, to the church of God, that's those who have been made the church by Jesus, that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours, called to be saints together. But you see that those called to be saints together are the ones who are sanctified in Jesus, who have been made the church. So again, we see it's the effectual call. It's the one who has resulted in a life, again, given to God. 
So being called communicates a claim on your life. And it's just as much an identity statement as loving God is. But before we can get to the promise of all things working together for good, there's one more piece, and I think it's the most important piece. It says it is, and it's this, that this work is according to God's purpose. Do you see that? It says, who are called according to his purpose. That's where I got that from. I'm not making it up. So it's, so again, that's the most important piece that is the work is according to God's purpose. And this is our assurance that all will work for good. It's, it's not, like again, broken record all throughout Romans, and I'm grateful for it because we are forgetful. It is not by our merit or by our will, but by the will of God and the work he accomplished in Christ. He loved us first. He called us out. And so it's by his work, by his merit, and that's the entire drive of this final statement of how you can have assurance, how you can persevere in suffering. And it's because, once again, God did it, God does it, and God is doing it. Do you want that in your hands? Are they strong enough? Anybody ever seen The NeverEnding Story? Yeah, it's good. And if you haven't, you should. Um, and there's this thing, he's the rock eater, and he's this huge beast. And there's, they're battling this thing called the great nothing, and it comes through and just eradicates everything. And, and so he's got, the rock beast has these friends, and the nothing comes in, and he gathers up his friends. But then nothing comes through and just wipes everything out. And then the kind of the void that's left, you know, the, the rock eater, he remains plot hole. I don't know how. Um, but he says this line. He's looking at his empty hands. And he says, these hands, these strong hands. That's all he says. And he's recognizing that his strong as they were, he couldn't do what it took to protect his friends. And that's, and we often believe that lie that it's, we find more comfort in the strength of our hands. We want the merit of our hands, but do you really want that? How many times have your hands failed you? We were created by God in love for his holy purpose, and we were created in his image. We were created good, and all of that still remains even as we are fallen but yet, we are not eternal. We are not all powerful. We're not all knowing. We're not holy. Do you want that in your hands? That's why this is assuring, because he's saying, hey, not by your hands, but by God's. That's why this is assuring. We, we get sucked in. I mean, I cannot tell you how often I get there and how many conversations I have where this struggle of belief is this idea that somehow I know better. Again, we said it last week and the week before and probably the week before that, but like this goes all the way back to the original sin in the garden. Like they thought they knew better. They're like, well, yeah, I get it. I get it. He said that. But I, I mean, I got a little bit better view here. And so this is why this is assuring. It's not, it's not by our hands, but by God's. It is the promise and work of our sovereign God that in his character being good and holy and just and loving and merciful that brings the confidence to this promise. It's not just something to put on your mirror. It's not just something to quote in a time of need. 
This is the entire thing. So the promise, all things work together for good. All things. Does that mean that all things are good and ordained by God? I have basically two sources of, maybe three sources of illustrations. Movies, my, my marriage, and parenthood. This is no different. I've already hit movies, so now it's time for parenthood. I had three marriage ones last week, so. But in my, in my kids, I, they are amazing. I love them. Not everything they do is good, believe it or not, if you know them. Not everything they do is good. Not everything they do is not, it's, it's not just like ignorantly bad. Like they do some bad things on purpose. They deceive, they manipulate, they lie. They disobey, they rebel, they destroy. They do all those things. Not everything my kids do is good, but as a parent, as their parents, Amber and I, we work to make everything they do be for their good. Whether that's, you know, gushing over them in their victories and showing them our greatest pleasure when they do things right, or if it's imposing a consequence on them as to teach them in ways that keep them from destruction. Think back to Matt Stevens' talk a couple months ago. If you haven't heard it, please go back and listen to it. So, so good. But as we step in and impose consequences, impose boundaries, we're doing it to, to first keep them from destruction, but also to teach them, to shape them, to develop character in all this. One of my favorite things to do after, after getting on to my kids and after seeing that they've understood, is to just tell them, hey, and I want you to know, like, I love you more than ever. I love you. Do you know why I do this? Because I want good for you. And because, and you know, and I know that some of this goes over their head. They're seven and six, but it's going to, I want it to always be in their memory. Do you know why I do this? Because I love you. Because I want the best for you. Because I've, I've seen a little bit more life. Because I have a little bit more understanding. And I want you to know this. And so I'm going to do whatever it takes to help you know this. Because in the long run, even though it's uncomfortable now, it's going to be for your good. So it's my pleasure. So when I think about that, I mean, that's, that's, the, that's, that's the posture of our God. How we can say all things work for good. This, this brings us to to this, this life of Joseph in Genesis, and, and he goes through all, he's sold, and he's thrown into a well to die, but then one of his brothers is like, well, hey, let's sell him. They sell him into slavery, he gets in, in, and he ends up going through all sorts of stuff. Again, he ends up in jail, he gets accused of, of adultery, he goes through all this stuff, but then he ends up being in a position to redeem his family later through a bunch of circumstances. Read, go, go read it, we can talk about it later. But Genesis 50, 20 says this, as for you, this is Joseph talking, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it, about, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So when we understand, not only is God holy and sovereign, but he's also our heavenly father working to take all things and use them for good. You see, it's not just our good. But it is. It's not just our good. But before we get to there, you know, I, I want to go a little farther with this idea of, of what's good for us. We're going we're gonna to skip ahead a second just in part, and we'll get to verses 29 and 30 in full in a second quickly, believe it or not, with what's in those verses. 
But verse 29, as we look at that, let me uh, just read it real quick so we know what we're talking about. He says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Why do I point to this as part of God's promise that all things will work together for good? See, I feel like many of us, and maybe I'll just speak for myself and maybe some of you identify, I've clung to this verse for hope in the past and also just done so in a general manner. Um, I got my first car when I was 18, um, and I had an interesting way of, of taking care of it. I would drive the heck out of it. I found all the cool places where you could jump and lose your stomach and things like that. I would, other stories. Um, but I would drive it and just drive it and enjoy it, and then my check engine light would come on, and you know what I would do? I would keep driving it. And, and as long as there were no other like indicators that something was wrong, like a clanking or a not working, I would just keep driving it. And then I would say, you know what? I kind of had this mentality. It's all going to work out. It's just going to fix itself. And weirdly enough, like often enough, often that light just went off. And I don't know what happened, but it kind of perpetuated a bad habit for a while until eventually I paid the price. But I had, that was kind of like my mentality was like, it'll just work out. And that's kind of how we engage this promise. It'll just work out in the general sense. It's just going to pan out. We too often apply it that way. God is saying something much more specific. He's saying that the good he is promising to bring about in us is character change. It's not just becoming a better person. It's becoming more like Jesus. See, our salvation is not just, again, some far-off thing that we get the benefit of later. It's present. And part of that is this present work of making us more like Christ. That's where our hope is. It's where our, it's where our satisfaction is. So we see we're driving here at the very core of our faith. We're driving here to the very core of our purpose. What Paul is saying here is that every trial, every hardship, everything being thrown at you, every, every bit of it is being used to grow us, to shape us, to develop us, to make us lo as loving as noble, as true, as wise, as strong, as good, as joyful, as kind as Jesus is. That's the work that's happening. That's how we can say it's all for good because it's, making, it's doing the work of healing us, of making us whole, of making us more like Christ. It's not just that we're just becoming more like Jesus. We are becoming what he is. We will not be divinity. I'm not saying that. We won't be divine, but yet... Every bit of promise and every bit of position that has been given to him by the Father is the Son. We are being brought into that and being made more into that. So it's not just that we're just taking on attributes. We are actually becoming what Jesus is. Remember earlier in Romans, we were told that we'll be about what the Holy Spirit is about. We will, we will set our minds what the Holy Spirit is about. This is assuming that our definition, because of this, because of this, us knowing that we are given the Holy Spirit, given the mind of Christ, this assumes, this, this promise assumes that our definition of good aligns with God's definition of good. Because if we're about what the Holy Spirit is about, then we're about what God is about, Creator God. Working together for good means that these are the things which ultimately 
satisfy. It means that we're living toward and unto the things that we were created for. And just the kind of the common illustration, trying to use a, a Stradivarius violin to sweep the floor would be horrendous. It wasn't created for that. But when you, when you use it for what it's created for, beauty comes forth. Or vice versa, when you try to use it to sweep the floor, the floor doesn't get clean. Only the broom can do that. And so we see like our sense of satisfaction comes when we actually live into the purpose we were created for. That's the glory of God experienced and expressed in fellowship and relationship with him. And he did that. He restored that in Christ. And on top of that, we're not just talking about good for today, but for the ultimate good of God's purpose for all creation, for all eternity. Do you notice it doesn't just say for your good? It says for good. All things work together for good. It's not just about you. If, again, last week we ended it saying, like, if you want peace and hope and satisfaction in this world, your life has to be about more than just yourself. It has to be about more than just how it goes with you. That is the most suffocating, terrifying way of life. Because it puts your eyes here instead of here. Puts your eyes here instead of there. Because when it's here, our eyes, and for those that can't see me, is I'm pointing up to our Heavenly Father. Maybe someone's hearing this somewhere else. Um, that is where, that is the source of our hope. And when, when we're looking out instead of at ourselves, we're again, we're once about, we are once again about the same purpose that our Heavenly Father is about. It's no different here. Spurgeon says the same sun that melts wax hardens clay. In other words, we have to understand what makes life good is not a particular set of circumstances, but rather how our hearts interact with them. I love what Tim Keller said. He said, if you love God for who he is in himself, you make a commitment and you endure difficulty. But if you are using God for what he gives you, you bail out, you bail out when suffering comes. So when we trust God as our sovereign God, sovereign God and find our satisfaction in what he desires, we will truly understand the assurance and the confidence of this claim that all things, all things in this life, all that we encounter and endure will indeed work together for good. It will work together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So I have a decision to make. We're not going to get to 29 and 30 today. So we're going to figure it out how to take it from here in these next couple of weeks because I do not want to rush through that. But I will say this. If you want to have any confidence in the claims of 28, you have got to understand 29 and 30. You can't, to, to, try to, to try to cling to 28 without 29 and 30, it puts the strength in your hands still, even though there's glorious truth in that. 29 and 30 is what brings us the assurance and the confidence of this claim. Once again, drilling into that it is because of the work of God. So, if you can be here next week, be here. If you can bring someone with you, bring them. Get them to listen to this first. If you can't be here next week, it'll be online by Tuesday, we'll say. And um, we'll continue just to be grateful for God's care for you and me because he knows the suffering. 
He knows the trial. Coming back, because we've got a couple minutes to close, coming back to this idea that, because I think this is probably one of the key things we have to drill into, and we're going to wrap it up more if we were going through the rest of the text, was this idea that it's if I love God enough, it will go well with me. Understanding this rightly keeps us from, from falling in to some false, empty, hollow truth. It's because what this promise is telling us is that, hey, you, Christian, Christ follower, it's, it's not the promise that is going to go more pleasant for you and less pleasant for others who don't love God. It's not the promise that you're going to get some for what you give. Because here's the deal. What the promise here is that you're going to experience the same life everyone else in this earth does because the world is in the state that it's in because it has fallen. And guess what? Because you serve a suffering king, again, talking about Jesus, you might even suffer a little bit more. Because as the master goes, so it goes for us. So that's the promise here. And that's not, it sounds a little bleak, but man, it's hopeful because if you're, if you're walking in this, you know it to be true. And so that's the glorious promise here that all will work for good, together for good, for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. We don't want something empty, something hollow, because it will prove itself to be so. It will crumble under our feet. Our conscience will just, will just, be overly burdened. So, it's a beautiful truth. There is hope. This is your confidence. This is what Paul is calling us to, what the heart of God is inviting us into, and it's all because of Jesus. So for you today, if you're, if you're not a Christ follower, I want you to think about your hands. Are they tired Do they feel strong today? If they feel strong today, where uh, have they always felt that way? Like, have you? It satisfies for a little time, but we're talking about eternal promise, not temporary. If you are a Christ follower, again, how do you how do you define what is good? What is satisfying? How do you endure with hope? How, do you, how can you say with confidence that this, this exhortation that nothing will be wasted, no trial, no suffering will be wasted, and for that to be a source of joy for you? It's because your eyes are cast on something else than just today, and it's eternal hope with a present purpose and promise. So let's live a life. Let's pursue living a life that is becoming more like Christ as we surrender to his truth and his will and his way. Let's pursue a life being about what God is about. So our hope is in him. Our purpose is in this world. It's not just about us. We've been given a great call. Go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, teaching them what I've commanded you and baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That's the work of being the light and love and truth of Jesus to those who don't know inviting them in to believe and surrender in life, walking alongside and parting to them what the Father has made known to you to the point where they can do the same. So I'm going to pray. We're going to continue in a time of communion. And um, 
thank you. I'm, I'm thankful for this time and look forward to what's to come <laughs> as we continue in 29 and 30. God, you are good. I thank you for this promise. Lord, that in, our, in us being new, redeemed, restored, you have stirred up for us an affection and a love for you that is an evidence of your work in our life. Lord, I thank you for the call in our lives, Lord, that you called us out from the pit, from the miry clay, into life and freedom and salvation. I pray that our hope would be solely in you and that our purpose in this life would be what you say it is, and that's to live for your glory, to exalt the name of Jesus, and to call the world into salvation. Lord, that's why we exist. So give us great unity as your church. Give us a joy and obedience and selflessness, and let our lives ring out Lord, your glory and the truth of Jesus, and let our mouths proclaim as you lead. Give us boldness. Give us humility. Give us courage. As we continue to worship through communion, continue just to shape our hearts and teach us in Jesus' name.